on the off chance that you are listening from Tibet. Sure, Tibet. And perhaps for some reason you don't know where Canada or the United States are. I don't know what that reason would be. But they live at a mountaintop in Tibet. How would they be listening to our podcast then? Mm-hmm. We've got some <laughs> technology, but not maps. How would they find us without knowing where the United States is, though? I'm just wondering, because we're kind of, you know, United States tangential. <laughs> As citizens. As citizens. We are vaguely related to those in the U.S. <laughs> Distantly. <laughs> Hi there, neighbors. Welcome back to The Next Town Over. I'm Carson Costa, and I'm here with my co-host, Nicole Bennett. Hi. We're trying out new software for editing purposes. This may be a learning curve. Please bear with us. We did use it on the bonus episode that we put out. You may have noticed an improvement in the sound on that one. They have a really cool feature in this new software that's studio sound that makes it sound like we have a sound studio, even though we don't. What? We don't have a sound studio? No, we have whatever this is. It's improving, I'll say that. (laughs) We're getting creative. We've got pictures. I'll show you pictures of the fun setups we've got. If you follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Yeah. And speaking of social media, we also have a Patreon now. Carson, what is a Patreon? Well, if you haven't heard of Patreon, (laughs) it's a website based on the idea of Renaissance-era patrons of the arts. I know, right? So creators like us can make an account, so fans, that's you guys, can support our work, and we can provide perks to supporters. So we're going to start with just two tiers. The first tier is $3 a month, which is just for if you're enjoying the podcast and want to help us keep making it, and we'll give you a shout out on the show for being awesome. The second tier is $10 a month and has the added bonus of getting our episodes early, on the Saturday before they air for the public. Personally, I like Patreon because it seems much nicer to get support directly from the people enjoying our work than to subject you to ads. Yeah, agreed. If you are interested, you can visit patreon.com forward slash the next town over podcast to learn more. And I'm going to include that link in the show notes as well. So with business aside, Today, we're going to dive into another neighborly relationship. As Americans, we love Canadians. And not just because they're our plan C if plan A turns out to be a dud. (coughs) I'm kidding. Of course. (laughs) Sure you are. I am kidding, mostly. But today, we're going to discuss all the ins and outs of the relationship between Canada and the United States of America. Intro music. With a flourish. (laughs) This is why we should be filming for YouTube, because... All of my gestures are lost on the people. They need to see... Th- no, they don't. They really don't need to see this. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, really no missing out on that. Oi! <laughs> Rude. I mean, I appreciate them. Mm-hmm. I do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that tone suggested otherwise, but okay. These are the two countries that make up the majority of North America. Technically, Mexico's there too, but that's for a later episode. We're not dealing with that today. So, Canada is the second largest country in the world. And the United States is the fourth largest country. And actually, I saw a little bit of variation on whether Canada was second or third. Who's first? Russia. Oh, duh. Russia is so large that even if you split it into its European and Asian parts... Those two new countries would still be the largest countries in their respective continents. It's insane. Who's third? China. I feel like because all the coastline, Canada's bigger. And speaking of the coastline, Canada has 240,000 kilometers of shoreline, which is 150,000 miles of shoreline. That is easily the longest in the world. For context, the United States has 95,000 miles with shoreline, which is 153,000 kilometers. So Canada easily is the longest shoreline in the world. And part of the reason for that is the Canadian Arctic Archipelago, which you know how Canada, as you head north, just dissolves into a smattering of islands. I am familiar with this, yes. So that's the Canadian Arctic Archipelago. It's just all those islands up there. There's 
over 36,000 of them. <laughs> and some of them are among the largest islands in the world. Oh, so, okay. It's too bad it's so gosh darn cold. Although, you know, with the way things are going, maybe it'll heat up one day. That is not funny. <laughs> <laughs> that is not funny. <laughs> one of the ways that the United States and Canada really contrast, Canada only has 6.8% agricultural land. Whereas the United States has 44.5% agricultural land. Meanwhile, about half of Canada is covered in forests, 90% of which are public owned. Sick. Which is really cool. It's basically just all wilderness for the people. I bet you that was really helpful for you in your van. It was so helpful. Basically, I could just park anywhere for free and stay there. Canada is great for van life. Canada has a population of 38,516,736, approximately. That's the estimate for 2023 based on census data. 85% of that population lives along the southern U.S. border, the southern Canadian border with the U.S., I mean. Meanwhile, the population of the United States has 339 million 665,118 people, according to the estimate based on 2020 census data. We have more than 300 million more people in our smaller country. Of course, we don't have the Arctic archipelago to deal with. The land is actually inhabitable. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's inhabitable. It just, it's more, more difficult. Massively unpleasant. Between the cold, the wolves, the bears, the moose. The moose. The moose gigantic moose. From a distance. From a distance. <laughs> I saw a video of a guy, I don't know if he was in Alaska or Canada, but he went out to his shed for something, threw out some garbage, and as he's coming back out, he sees a moose and he just goes, nope. He just slowly gets back into his little shed and shuts the door. <laughs> and the moose walks up and sniffs at the door and checks it out for a few minutes and then wanders away. With the terror on this guy's face, I'm just like, huh? No, we're not doing that today. <laughs> I'll stay in the shed until you're ready to leave, <laughs> sir. It was very funny and not something I want to deal with ever. One more major distinction, language. Mm. Which some people might be surprised by. Why? What is the difference? Well, in Canada, they have two official languages. The first is English. And the second is French, which we'll get to when we discuss the history. Meanwhile, do you know what the national language of the United States is? Spanish. No. <laughs> that was a joke, guys. I know that it's not Spanish or English. Actually, it's... We don't have one. Ta-da! We do not have an official national language. Though I think something like 30 states have a official state language of English. But yeah, there's no official national language, which I think is really, really cool. Another reason why it baffles me that Americans don't learn foreign languages, because we don't even have a national language. We're really committing to the bit of a melting pot here. It just, it baffles me a little bit. Anyway, let's dive into the history. We actually still don't know a lot about the super early history of the Americas. Discoveries will always be made new technology allows us to be more accurate or gain new information from old discoveries. We're going to start with what they currently know or suspect based on current evidence. You may remember learning this in school. People migrated to Beringia, which is basically what we call the Bering Strait when it's above water and therefore not a strait, about 20 to 25,000 years ago and stayed in that region for an unknown period of time until migrating south where the Clovis culture became the first Native American civilization. Does that sound vaguely familiar from elementary school? Yes. Yes. Discoveries in the last couple decades have rather resoundingly disproved that belief. It is still being taught, though. Why? I, I, I don't know. Oh, okay. I don't know. I'm guessing that part of it is that they want to simplify things for kids. Another reason is that over the last 20 or so years, as these dis discoveries are being made that seem to disprove the Clovis first theory, 
they were looked at with a lot of skepticism because up until that point, the great bulk of evidence seemed to suggest that the Clovis culture was the first one or the first major significant settlement type culture. People found it hard to believe that indigenous cultures could have been around years earlier with so little evidence. And since techniques used to date these discoveries are hardly foolproof, it was easy to dismiss them. So what's the new theory on how people arrived? There's a lot of questions about that because we've now found a lot of evidence that suggests that people were here thousands of years before the Clovis culture. There's footprints in New Mexico that date back 22,500 years ago. Woohoo! Which the Clovis culture is like 14,000 years ago. There's also evidence in central northern Mexico. They were looking at a high altitude site in a cave structure where they found a bunch of tools, over a thousand, that they've dated back to 30,000 years ago. Woo! Which is earlier even than they thought people came over the Bering Strait land bridge. That completely rewrites the history because if people were in Mexico before we even thought they arrived in Alaska, then how did they get here? How early did they come? You know, what does that now look like? And they're pretty confident about the findings on that particular site because they used two different methods to verify the findings. They used radiocarbon dating, which most listeners will probably have at least heard of before. And they also used a technique where they measure the last time that quartz fragments in the stone tools were exposed to light. Hmm. So in order to do that, they had to collect the material in total darkness, which is difficult. But since both tests had the same results for all the different pieces then it suggests that they're accurate. Mm -hmm. I wonder how people came to the Americas. And it's especially interesting because that means that they would have had to come over before the land bridge was actually accessible to use. So there's a lot of questions on that. There's suggestions that possibly they used boats, which seems reasonable, (laughs) would have had to be the case. But again, as they keep, investigating and keep discovering we'll probably find out more one day cool i just found that all really really interesting because thirty thousand years of history of people living in the americas that is just as deep and rich of a history as most other places in the world many indigenous cultures do believe that they came from the americas and that they've always been there so there's also something to be said with these studies in the sense of not offending the culture's beliefs Right. Because inherently by researching this, you're going against everything that they believe about themselves that they've been taught about themselves, which is difficult, but I do think it's important to investigate. It just is also important to preserve those traditions and to tell those stories as well. Right. Regardless of when people first came here, there was a population boom in the Americas about 14,700 years ago. That's the end of the last ice age, and it coincides with a lot of large animals in the Americas going extinct, Mm -hmm. including, apparently we had camels, which was news to me, as well as mammoth and horses. There was a species of horse that lived in the North American continent. Oh, well, it makes sense that when the the Spanish brought over horses, no wonder they took to the Americas so well. They're like, this is genetically for us. Yay. Part of that, those extinctions probably had to do with animals not being equipped for the end of the ice age dying out because they just couldn't adapt. But they also think that in part it was because of the population boom as more and more people need to be fed, there's more and more hunting going on and a lot of these species were probably hunted to extinction. By 1492, a date which should be significant to many North Americans who learned as school children that in 1492, A loser by the name of Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Okay. So by that time, approximately 1,100 tribes existed in the U.S. and Canada. Population estimates range quite a bit. I saw a lot of different numbers. It's very, very difficult to make that estimate because obviously there was no census data. 
And by the time that Europeans had fully come in and settled, the populations had been decimated quite a bit. So it's really hard to say for sure, but it was definitely in the millions. One common number I saw that a lot of researchers seem to agree on is that there were 10 million indigenous people living in what would become the continental United States. Good for them. One more thing of note, the Norse, they did come to the New World in the early 11th century. And they had a great relationship with the indigenous. They kind of just showed up and were like, hi, and then left. Which I was reading an article uh, about it, that the indigenous people welcomed like the fishermen and mm. some of the earlier explorers. And they're like, cool, that's great. Yeah, we can trade. Here's some fishing. Fantastic. Now go home. There was a settlement found in Newfoundland that they were able to date specifically because they can measure certain elements in the tree rings to determine when there were spikes in solar flares. And they can match that to trees around the world to specific dates. So cool. Isn't that so cool? So they know for a fact that in, I can't remember what year it was exactly, but it was the late 980s in that range. Might have been 990, something like that. There was a massive solar flare. And they see this in trees around the world, that there was a massive spike that year. So they looked at all of the trees that were used in this North Settlement And they found the ring with that solar flare in it. And then they were able to count out the number of rings to the specific year that those trees were felled to build the settlement. That is so cool. Thanks of this stuff. It's the year 1021. The settlement was built there. But there's no evidence of any burials or any sort of long-term use. So they think it was only in use for a few months before the Norse went back home. And then they went to Europe and told everyone this grand story about, hey, we found this new world and there's like people there and they have cool stuff. Dang it, Norsemen. Keep it to yourself. (laughs) I mean, it was probably in good faith. Like, hey guys, this was really cool. And you know what? It's very helpful. And then we we hung out. They were great. And then we left as you were supposed to do. And the Brits went, really? Not just the Brits. I know. The French, the Brits, the Spanish, the the Italian, the Dutch. They're all like, oh, more land, you say. Pretty much everyone except for the Germans. (laughs) (laughs) More land and resources, you say. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Where exactly? Mm -hmm. Great. Did you mention the Portuguese? Yes. I think so. I don't know. Portuguese? I just was like, I was trying to think if we left anyone out. Because we don't want to leave anybody out. No. We're equal opportunity offenders. (laughs) But before we get to the arrival of the Europeans, I want to talk a little bit about relationships between the tribes. Because if we're talking about the relationship between the United States and Canada in this area here, then a lot of that history is relationships between the tribes in those areas. So the big one here is the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, which is more commonly known amongst us white people as... Iroquois Confederacy. The Haudenosaunee is what they called themselves, and it's people of the long house. And this consisted of five tribes in the upstate New York area and kind of along the border there with Canada. So the five tribes, which is the Kenyan Kahaka tribe, which we know as the Mohawks, the Oneida tribe, the Onondaga tribe, the Cayuga tribe, and the Seneca tribe. This is sometimes called the oldest participatory democracy on earth. The thing is, nobody actually knows how old it is. It already existed when the Europeans showed up. So scholars suggest the mid to late 1400s based on archeological evidence, because as the legend goes, all the tribes were fighting and then had this great peace come upon them. So they looked for evidence of sort of war and big battles and fights. And the evidence they found suggests that that ended around the mid to late 1400s. So that's when archaeologists think it might have happened. But amongst the Haudenosaunee, their legend is that it's been going on for like thousands of years. (laughs) So who knows exactly? The legend here is that Hiawatha, which was this Seneca tribesman he lost his wife and daughters and super distraught by this he wanders until he reaches the Kanyankahaka which is the easternmost tribe 
where he meets this guy called Dekanawida. And Dekanawida is a Wendat man living there at the time. They don't really know why he went there and wasn't living with his tribe anymore, but he was there. And he becomes known as the great peacemaker. He meets Hiawatha and he comforts him and hears about his strife for losing his wife and daughters and says, okay, let's go to the five nations and convince them to make peace so that this doesn't happen to anyone else. So they traveled to the five nations to create the Confederacy, which still exists today. And the argument that he made, he would hold an arrow and he would show how easily it would break. And then he would hold five together and show that he couldn't break them no matter how hard he tried. As such, suggesting that five together was stronger than one. United we stand, divided we fall. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> After colonization, the Haudenosaunee Confederacy fought with the French and traded with the Dutch and the British. The other one that I wanted to mention was the Blackfoot Confederacy. They call themselves a Sikh Sikh Aitsitapi, which I'm probably butchering, but I'm trying my best here. I think all the pronunciations have been very well attempted. Thank you. That means Blackfoot speaking real people. Dope. <laughs> Heck yeah. This is mainly consists of three tribes, the Kainai, the Pikani, and the Sikska. They lived in the southern Alberta and Saskatchewan region as well as northern Montana. And they still live there. They had an alliance system with other Athabascan nations. And they cooperated with the Hudson's Bay Company, but fought with settlers and traders to the south. So, as you can tell, when the Europeans came in, these sort of confederacies and groups and tribes were picking sides between different groups of settlers. Which then segues into the problems that the European nations were having amongst themselves. Because this very quickly becomes a story of the tensions between Britain and France. What? The French and British have a contentious relationship? Just a smidge. Huh. At least at this point in time. At the time of European colonization, as I said, there were millions of indigenous people already living there. We don't typically learn that in school. We're kind of given the impression that it was just wilderness, wide open for the taking. That, yeah, there were some tribes there, but there weren't that many people around. And this is not the case. No. It was packed full of people. There were tribes everywhere. I was looking at this map of where the tribes were historically located upon arrival of the European people. And it's just packed full of names of tribes. The entire continent is covered. So on the northern coast of the future United States, there were farms, cleared land, densely populated villages surrounded by wooden walls. In the south, there were chiefdoms centered on large mounds. There were societies here. Part of the reason that we are given the impression that it was empty for the taking when the colonists arrived is because by that time, it kind of was. Because the first people to come to the Americas weren't colonists. They were explorers and traders. So they were coming for short visits just to trade with the indigenous peoples. The indigenous people naturally didn't want permanent settlements. So after a while, they would be like, okay, you came, you saw, you got some stuff, be gone, go home. And they would go home. But meanwhile, they had brought disease with them. So while they're sailing back home and getting more people together to come back to the Americas, that disease is just sweeping through the tribes. Since the diseases went ahead of the settlers, by the time people actually started arriving to colonize, which is a hundred years after the original explorers started coming to the Americas, many, many villages had been wiped out or nearly so. So the people remaining went to other tribes seeking shelter. There would be entire villages that were just empty of people. There's widowed land. So the pilgrims and the other colonists find it and they're like, wow, there's no one here. Look at this nice clear area with nobody living on it. I guess we will. So the first 50 settlements in New England were on deserted indigenous villages. In colonial accounts, when you read through their journals and diaries, they're constantly finding skeletons. 
of people that died from the diseases. That would be horrifying. It's very sad. It makes me sad. And this is something that I didn't realize because they do not teach you that in school. And they tell you that diseases wiped out a lot of the indigenous people, but they don't tell you just how bad it was and that that allowed colonists to basically usurp their land uncontested. <laughs> Are you ready to dive into the colonies? Yes, let's dive into the colonies. Okay, Jamestown, Virginia colony was technically the first of the 13 colonies. It was founded in 1607. St. Augustine, Florida came first in 1565. That was a Spanish colony and it doesn't really come into the story until later. This story really focuses more on Britain versus France. That's where those skirmishes across what would become the Canadian and United States border really come into play. Many other colonies followed, which consolidated into 13, including New York, which originally belonged to the Dutch. So, Jamestown was founded in 1607. The following year, in 1608, Samuel de Champlain was charged by the King of France to create a permanent trade settlement in modern-day Canada and found New France. This is now Quebec City. Both France and Britain are heading out neck and neck to go conquer the new world. 27 men sailed with Champlain. Only seven survived the first winter. Ew. I wouldn't <laughs> want to do it now with all the modern comforts, let alone back then. Canada's rough, guys. So that was extremely difficult. And they had a hard time really digging in and rooting in and building a, a solid colony there. Meanwhile, the English colonies are farming and flourishing and by 1670, British colonists outnumber the French 18 to 1. <laughs> and remember, France and Britain are trying to fight over basically the same resources. They're both going after the fur trade. They're both trying to consolidate power. So the French king, his solution to this population problem is to send a ship full of women <laughs> who were poor orphans to the colony. These women later became known as les filles du roi, or the daughters of the king. The thing that I do like about this, because they didn't have a choice to go, they were just packed on the ships and sent, and it was a miserable voyage, and that's awful. However, once they got there, they got to pick their husbands. That's nice. So they would sit there with a nun and the uh, like governor of the colony, and the men would come in one by one and basically get interviewed by the women. And then the women would go, I want that one. <laughs> yeah, it's fine. I mean, the rest of it sucks, but that part's at least a good perk. Yeah, and particularly because a lot of the time, you know, these women in France were of such low status that they didn't really have any prospects. So when they get sent to the New World, now they can have anybody they choose. <laughs> and land. And land, yeah. And more than that, they were also given a dowry by the king of 50 livres, which is about $1,000 today. And if they produced 10 children, they would get 300 livres a year. That's a lot of kids. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of kids. It's a lot of kids, but it's a lot of money. Did they all have to survive? I don't know the answer to that question. Because that would be... Talk about numbers game. I gave birth to 12. Five of them it lived. It just produced 10 kids. So I'm guessing that means that they had to birth to 10. Sick. That would still suck, but... Because, again, you can't guarantee in colonial standards that all those kids are going to make it to adulthood. Which is probably why it had to be 10. Because then percentage game, at least enough of them are going to survive that your population is still going to grow. Yeah. Which is fair. I mean, a lot of them were doing that type of numbers anyway. So they're trying to get the numbers up so they can compete with the British. Right. And boy, did it work. They sent nearly 800 women in all to the colonies. Whew. On average, there were five kiddos per family. This was twice the rate of the 1960s baby boom. <laughs> and two thirds of Canadians today can trace their ancestry back to Le Fille du Bois. Sick. <laughs> so it worked. Can't argue with those results. Now, meanwhile, around the same time, at 1665, these two fellas, Radisson and de Grossier, they were brothers-in-law, and they are looking around at the fur trading business, and they're going, hmm, there aren't many beavers left. We should find more beaver. 
So they go to the Cree elders, and this fellow, DeGrossier, he's kind of awesome, and he speaks Cree somehow. So he communicates with the Cree elders, and they tell Radisson and DeGrossier about super high-quality beaver in the north. They say, oh my god, there's beavers everywhere. There's just millions of them, and they have the thickest pelts, the softest pelts. They're the big, fat beavers, and... Rasson and Grassier are seeing dollar signs. Or, you know, Libra signs. <laughs> All they hear is cha-ching. Because money was metal back then. They're like, this is awesome. We're going to be rich. They go back to the governor of New France and tell him about what they found out. The governor of New France, however, is ticked off because they didn't talk to him about it before going to the Cree elders. So he arrests Grassier, throws him in jail for not a long period of time. I think like a month or two. And tells them... No, I will not fund your expedition to the north to go find these beavers. So when DeGrassier gets out of jail, he's furious. Yeah, power trip. He convinces his brother-in-law, Radisson, to sail back to Europe, go to Britain, <laughs> and try to find patrons for their expedition to the north in the royal court in Oxford. And King Charles II thinks this is a grand plan. So he funds their expedition. And they set out on two ships, Radisson on one ship and DeGrassier on the other ship. Radisson's ship gets broken and he has to turn back. But DeGrassier makes it to the Hudson Bay, meets up with the Cree elders, and he establishes the Hudson's Bay Company, which still exists today. That's insane. Yeah. Also, this is totally, like, DeGrassier is giving off so much main character energy here. Like, he speaks Cree, he communicates with the Cree elders, he's the one that gets thrown in jail. His ship makes his main character energy all the way. Just, just saying. He funds a company that still exists. Yes. So, and Hudson's Bay Company just keeps popping up in this history as things go on. I mean, they become the basis of a squabble over a pig later on. <laughs> just be prepared for that. This kind of brings us to the Seven Years' War. Now, Seven Years' War was primarily a European dispute, but since all the European powers had colonies all over the world... It kind of just spilled out onto everything else. The primary issue here was that in 1754, both France and Britain had claimed the Ohio Valley, which naturally sparks conflicts when French settlers move onto some land and are like, we're going to homestead here. And then British settlers move onto the same land and are like, no, we're going to homestead here. Meanwhile, the indigenous are like, hey, that's our <laughs> land. We've been homesteading here. What the heck? Yes, exactly. So they all start fighting, and there's a number of battles here. It's not super important. In 1959 is the Battle of Quebec, where British claims New France, and that is kind of that. At the Treaty of Paris, where they wrap up this whole Seven Years' War thing, the French decide to let the British keep New France because it is less important than other properties, such as what would later become the Louisiana Purchase. French culture does survive in Quebec, obviously, as they speak French there today. But this whole thing is really important for two reasons. First of all, as long as France was around, the colonists in the English colonies needed protection from the British military mm -hmm. because they couldn't protect themselves from France. Right. And the second thing was the Seven Years' War was very, very costly, which causes the British to up taxes. Shoot. I think most people will know how that story goes. Colonists did not like being taxed without representation. And it particularly peeved them in 1774 when Britain passed the Quebec Act, which established religious freedom for Roman Catholics. It restored French civil law in what was formerly New France. And it reserved Ohio Valley for Quebec. At the same time, King George III issued a royal proclamation in 1763 to establish the boundaries of the colonies and where they ended, the Indian territories began, where they could not settle or trade without the permission of the Indian Department, which also led to a lot of strain between the colonies and the crown because they wanted to expand and couldn't because of the deal he had made with the... And I... The Indian Department is what they were called. So there was that. And then 
they were hoping they'd be able to expand into the Ohio Valley, which was then given to Quebec. <laughs> and the colonists were like, oh, we see who the favorite child is now. <laughs> They're not even English. They're French. So, yeah, war breaks out in Lexington, Massachusetts on 19th of April, 1775. In school, we learned about this as Battle of Lexington and Concord and as the shot heard around the world, which I don't know if the rest of the world knows that that was the shot heard around the world. Not? Is that something that you guys learned? The rest world's like, the what? <laughs> Someone shot who, when? That is very presumptuous of us. I know. So I'm just wondering if when they learn about the American Revolution, do they learn about the start of it as being the shot heard around the world? Is that a term that our, our listeners in other countries have heard before? That kills me. Because <laughs> even if they bother to learn about the American Revolution at all. Oh, I'm sure they <laughs> learn something about it. I don't know. I can just imagine, I don't know, a school in the Philippines... They don't care. Hard to say. We have to. We all have to talk to people. I mean, more. at the very least, in world history, they would learn about it. Uh, I didn't learn much about the Philippines, did you? No, but we're not the Philippines. I mean, I hate to say it, but the United States of America kind of plays a significant role in modern day history. Fair. So I think that if you're learning world history, American Revolution is going to be part of that, no matter where you are. Anyway, let us know. We want to know. Write into us. <laughs> Before we move on to the revolution, I wanted to go back to the Haudenosaunee Confederacy. Because in the 1720s, the Tuscarora, which was a tribe in North Carolina, they moved northward to join the Haudenosaunee. The Haudenosaunee was once known as the five nations, and then once the Tuscarora joined, they were the six nations. During the revolution, the Haudenosaunee split because the Cayuga and the Tuscarora decided to side with the Americans, the revolutionists, while the other four decided to side with the British. So that obviously caused tension and problems, and it split up this confederacy that had been working together for hundreds of years at that point, which is sad. Once the Americans won, they forced all six tribes to sign a treaty with them that basically gave them no rights whatsoever. That was the... Treaty of Versailles of 1783. One notable thing about the Haudenosaunee is that their constitution, which at the time was delivered orally, may have been an inspiration to the founding fathers when they wrote our constitution. Cool. Yeah. And I feel like they should get more credit for that. I agree. Yeah. So we're giving them credit. They get gypped on a lot of things. They do. Okay. So back to... (laughs) America versus Britain and France and Canada. Hail as old as time. We're back to the Thunderdome. (laughs) (laughs) Immediately when this starts, (laughs) the Americans send out propaganda trying to get support in Canada. Because they're like, oh, you are also a colony. You must also be upset about this, clearly. The Canadians are like, I mean, kind of, but not really. We're good. We're good. We're fine. We don't need to be involved in this. But the Americans are so upset that they're like, clearly everyone must be upset. So with that mentality, they decide to march on Canada. (laughs) So from September to December of 1975, the Americans attack Montreal and Quebec. They take Montreal without a fight, but they're defeated in Quebec. And they're all shocked because they're like, why didn't you take up arms? Why didn't you join us? Why didn't... What's happening here? Naturally, the Canadians are kind of ticked off because they're like, you attacked us. Why would you do that? That's not nice. And so at that point, there are any sympathies that they may have had for the revolution, the American Revolution, go out the window and any remaining American sympathizers are like chased out of town. So how do we go from that to our friendly neighbors that we've got today. Because the Canadians are just so darn nice. Well, we'll get there. This was a misjudgment on the Americans' part because they definitely expected the Canadians to join them and be like, yes, we're revolting too. France is still ticked off because Britain took New France from them. They decided to support the Americans. Ben Franklin visited France in 1776 to acquire supplies and weapons and support. And in 1778, it became a formal alliance. 
Hey, real quick, do you know who else supported Americans in their revolt? Who? The Moroccans! Yes, they did. Which we're going to get to that. Another episode. I was just excited because we're in Morocco. I know, it is exciting. So, we have a revolution. It's, you know, it's, it is what it is. The Americans win. Duh. (laughs) (laughs) And the Brits surrender in 1781. And the Treaty of Paris formally recognizes the United States in 1783. Q 80,000 loyalists bolting for the border. (laughs) Because everybody in the States that supported Britain is like, we're no longer safe here. And so they run to Canada. Could you imagine being in one of the Georgia settlements and being like, well, can't stay here. Let's go to Canada. From gators to grizzlies. Talk about a change of scenery. That has a huge impact on Canada's future because at that point in time, that is a significant portion of your population. This causes Canada to be a little more conservative in some ways. It also promotes this sense of change through gradual political progress as opposed to change through revolution. So they're a little less trigger happy than us Americans. Surprising no one. (laughs) What? I know, shocking. So the next incident between the United States and Canada was the War of 1812. This was a three-pronged invasion into Canada. Once again, the Americans are showing up thinking that they are liberating Canada from Britain and that the Canadians are going to be pleased. Which they forgot that the British loyalists went to Canada. They were happy the way things were. And they're like, here, we're here to liberate you. You, we did this already. You won. We left. (laughs) That was the deal. I know, I think it's hilarious that 30 years earlier, all the people that wanted to stay with Britain went to Canada. And then they're just here like, we're here to free you. From the people that you wanted to be with. So they thought they were liberators. They were wrong. The Americans seem to do that a lot. They, they keep trying to liberate people. They don't want to be liberated. <laughs> they captured York, which is now Toronto, in 1813, and they torched it. How liberating. Super liberating. <laughs> of course, the Brits were paid the favor by torching D.C. in 1814. We had it coming. I mean, we did it first. Yes. Yeah. So, you know. They had it coming. They had it coming. They only had themselves to blame. If you'd have been there, if you'd have seen it, I bet you you would have done the same. Okay. Anyway. It's not a musical. We're not. It can be. Five, six, seven. No. 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 (laughs) So that ends with the Treaty of Ghent. And all conquered territory was returned. So we returned to where we started when this war began. Oh. It achieved nothing. Such progress. Much fun. Yeah, so that sucked. I like that that's in your notes. <laughs> so that sucked. It did suck. I know. I just love that. That's how you literally wrote that. So that sucked. That's because I was finishing this at 3 o'clock in the morning and my brain just... Sarcasm was how I was functioning. Anyway. <laughs> Everybody was like, this whole fighting with each other thing is not fun. It's not good. We don't like it. So they start trying to figure out how to live with each other because obviously the Americans hate the British, but they share a border with them. Awkward. They start throwing eggs at their neighbors. So in 1817, the Rush-Bagot Agreement limits naval armaments in the Great Lakes. They agree to one ship apiece in a couple of the lakes and two ships apiece in a couple of the other lakes. I can't remember which ones, but... It doesn't really matter. The point is, that basically stops the naval race between Britain and the United States, which works out well for everyone. Of course, they do keep building forts and stuff along the border and fortifying. But for the most part, this de-escalates things drastically. And then in 1818, the United States and the Brits agree to the 49th parallel being the border between Lake of the Woods, which is that corner of Minnesota, where it, you know, looks like the hat, to the Rockies. Yeah. And then from there to Oregon, they just agree to not deal with until a later date. That later date is 1846, when the Oregon Treaty extends that 49th parallel rule all the way to the Georgia Strait, which is Puget Sound, which becomes a problem later. Remember what I said about the pig? Ah, the pig. There's a few more skirmishes along the border, And basically the lesson that I pulled out of these incidents is that the United States and Canada couldn't be mean to each other if they tried. 
Really? They're really, really bad at fighting with each other. In 1838, there's the Patriot War. I'm giving that air quotes. There's this little itty bitty uprising in Canada that fails miserably because most of the people there don't want it. <laughs> so its leaders are like, who do we know that likes to liberate people? Oh my God. <laughs> And they head south of the border to the United States, where many just average American citizens are like, yeah, you should be liberated. This is awesome. They're thrilled at the prospect of going to Canada and liberating them from the evil British. So 300 insurgents. Oh, my God. Remember, 80,000 loyalists went there. But these 300 people, it's a mix of Canadians and Americans. With pitchforks. Toes, basically. They attempt to invade Canada. How'd that go? They fail miserably. Oh, okay. I was on pins and needles. The U.S. government is watching this, like, why? And so they just sort of show up at the border, like, hey, like, here's some of our army and navy guys to help you guys defend your border against whatever this is. <laughs> and so the U.S. government and the British work together. To stop an invasion of the 300 people. <laughs> A poorly conceived invasion. So that didn't work at all. The next one also didn't work at all. I'm sorry, what do your notes say? The 1839-38-39 Pork and Beans War? Why are these not the things we're taught in school? I want to learn about the Pork and Beans War. So there's a couple reasons why this... Actually, we're not entirely sure why it's called the Pork and Beans War. It's either because that's the typical meal of lumberjacks or because that's the typical rations of the British... Militia. I like both options. Yeah. Basically, lumberjacks in Maine and, you know, across the border there with Canada were cutting down trees and have disputes over who gets to cut down which trees. <laughs> These disputes eventually turn violent and they're just like, I mean, picture 15 guys just brawling over trees. Sounds like men. And they're about to get into a fight and <laughs> before they can get into this epic battle where they're going oh. to fist fight. Yeah. Three Canadians got mauled by a bear. Which Even put an end to that. Even Mother Nature's like, this is ridiculous. Knock it off. <laughs> the Americans start building forts and used effigies of Queen Victoria for target practice. How mature of them. They all ended peacefully with the 1842 Webster-Ashburton Treaty, which established the main Canadian border. So basically everyone's yelling at each other. Three Canadians get mauled by a bear. Some Americans shoot pictures of Queen Victoria and then everybody goes home happy. I mean, other than, you know, the poor people getting mauled by a bear. Worked out pretty well. It worked out pretty well. But I like that that's the pork and beans war. There's not even a war. There are no battles. <laughs> it was a backyard brawl. <laughs> Ridiculous. This is what I mean by just the Americans and Canadians are really bad at having wars with each other. <laughs> They consider that a war. I mean, I guess there had to be a treaty signed, but that was still considered a war. Are you ready for the 1859 pig war? Yes. Okay. This is the pig that I've mentioned a couple times already. So remember that 49th parallel that yes. ends in the Strait of Georgia? Mm -hmm. There's an island in the middle there that was disputed. It could have been on either side and nobody was really sure which because they didn't explain that. This is the San Juan Island. And so naturally, both Canada and the United States claim it. The Hudson Bay Company, they set up shop there. And then also there were 18 American settlers that were like, this seems like a cool place to live. We're going to live there. So one of the American farmers finds a pig rooting around in his vegetables that are growing. So he shoots it because it's destroying his product. And bacon. The Hudson's Bay Company is like, wait a second, that was our pig. You killed our pig. So they call the Canadian law enforcement officers and the Brits threaten to arrest this farmer and kick out all of his neighbors. <laughs> all of his neighbors are like, that's not fair. So they call the American military and the American military sends a regiment to protect their people, their settlers. So the Brits send for two naval warships that show up in the bay and the admiral in charge is looking around and he's, and he's like, guys, I don't know if you noticed, but it's a pig. It's a pig. I am not going to send two great nations to war over a pig. So he says, everybody just calm down. We'll all just sit here and wait. Okay. 
Okay. And both Britain and Washington, D.C. are like, what the heck is happening there? Like, how did this... It's a pig. How did this happen? So they just let both militaries occupy this island <laughs> for 12 years. Oh, my God. 12 years? Until finally... Germany's Kaiser, Wilhelm I, is like, this has gone on way too long, you nincompoops. And he pulls <laughs> together an arbitration commission, which rules in 1872 that the San Juan Islands were American territories. <laughs> After 12 years, the Germans were like, all right, even we've had enough of this baloney, it's been settled. We've chosen for you. <laughs> 12 years of staring each other down over a pig really bad oh yeah okay here's the last one this one's hilarious too <laughs> more hilarious than derman saying hey nincompoops no also i was putting words in the mouth know, there he like, didn't actually say nincompoops that was my word i like the fact that you used the word nincompoop <laughs> it's a great word <laughs> ridiculous word so in 1866 we have the fenian raids Ooh. post-civil war Irish Americans thought it would be a good idea to hold Canada hostage in exchange for independence for Ireland. And when I say Irish Americans, I mean like 300 guys. We're going to hold all of Canada hostage. Well, have you met the Irish? <laughs> they get a little big for the British sometimes, but you know, they try. Meanwhile, the Americans were kind of ticked off at the Brits for supporting the Confederacy during the Civil War. And... They were ticked at Canada for being a sanctuary for Confederate sympathizers and spies. So the government knew these Irish Americans were planning this invasion. And they just sort of were like, eh, they deserve it. And turned a blind eye. At first, anyway. Meanwhile, the Irish Americans are all gathering on the border. And they're preparing. And they're going to war. And they're all excited about it. But the first plan just fizzled out. Because apparently that's what happens with these attempts to invade Canada. <laughs> The second plan, though, it did kind of work out. They uh, defeated the Canadian militia at the Battle of Ridgeway. Hmm. But at that point, the American government is like, okay, this could actually turn into an international incident, and we don't want that. So they called Ulysses S. Grant, who, you know, was the general for the Civil War, and they were like, hey, your men are causing a ruckus in the north. Can you go take care of that, please? So they send him up there to chastise his, you know, children and send them back home with their tails between their legs. But, Dad, <laughs> we're going to help the Irish. And they did not liberate the Irish. But Canada did get autonomy the following year. Neat. Yeah. So... Funny little quinky ink there. The Quebec Conference in 1864 led to the British North America Act in 1867, which gave Canada autonomy and what would become the foundation for its constitution. At that point, Canada had been running most of its foreign relations anyway. This was mostly just an acknowledgement that it was autonomous because while technically any relations with Canada were supposed to go through Britain. When you literally live right across the border from each other, it doesn't make sense to call the guy on the other side of the ocean to negotiate things. He's a three-month boat right away. Nah. Nah. The United States and Canada had been doing their own thing for a while by that point. So it didn't have a huge impact, but it was really important for Canada because it led to their independence. That they actually wanted this time. In 1923, Canada and the U.S. agreed to a bilateral fisheries treaty it was one of the examples of them working together more. And the United States recognized Canada as an independent state with autonomous control over its foreign relations on February 18th, 1927, which was after the British proposal of Dominion's independence, which culminates in 1931 with the Statute of Westminster. And that's when they gave all of their dominions their independence. Though actually Canada technically didn't get full independence that time. Because the way they set this up, Britain gave all the dominions an option. They said, you can keep the sort of pseudo-independence that we've already negotiated with these earlier treaties and things. Or you can come up with your new resolutions and we'll agree to those. 
And all of the other Dominions came up with new resolutions, but Canada decided to keep the one from 1867, which still had the ties with Britain. They did not actually pass their own resolution until 1982. And that's when they got the final step to full independence from Britain. Neat. Weird. No. I think Britain was like, you're free! And Canada's like, no, we're good, man. We felt free anyway, so. I mean, we kind of been free, but like, we're not in a rush. (laughs) That brings us up to today. That's the full history. Do you feel like you understand Canada and the United States better now? No. Yes, of course I do. Okay. You can ask it again. I'll I'll say yes. No, it's fine. Today, Canada and the United States share the world's longest international border. It is 5,525 miles long, which is close to 9,000 kilometers. And it has 120 land ports of entry. Oof. Yeah. Which is a lot. I honestly didn't think it was that much. No. Of course, you can also just go hiking and accidentally trip over the line in some places. It's not like there's a fence or anything. What? There's no wall? There's no wall. This is a really important border for both countries. Nearly 2.6 billion in goods and services crosses the border every day. That is a lot of trade. There's also obviously plenty of indigenous cultures that span the border. Their traditional borders were drastically different than our modern day ones. Pre-pandemic, 400,000 people crossed the border daily, which is Hmm. a lot of people. There are also 800,000 Canadians living in the United States. And... The number I found was 740,000 Americans living in Canada. I'm not entirely sure how accurate that is because Canada had their number of Canadians living in the U.S. just right on their website. Very easy to find. I couldn't find anywhere where the United States government posted a number like that for Americans living in Canada. They're shamed. So I don't know. I found that number eventually from a source that seemed pretty reputable, but if. I am wrong. Please tell me. They also work together in a number of ways, including NORAD, which, I don't know. Personally, I've always just known NORAD as the Santa map. (laughs) So what NORAD actually does, it's the North American Aerospace Defense Command. (laughs) They don't just track Santa. They also are a binational organization charged with the missions of aerospace warning, aerospace control, and maritime warning. So they're in charge of finding... Oh, I don't know, weather balloons that are floating into our territory that might actually be spy balloons. I'll say wayward Chinese balloons. Wayward Chinese balloons. Yeah. Both countries also share NATO collective defense commitments. Makes sense. There's also this thing. There's two names for it because apparently we had to fight over who got to put their name first on the document. I love the fact that it's the same thing. But Canada puts their name first, and the U.S. puts our name first, and Mexico is just at the end. So United States and Mexico call this agreement the United States-Mexico-Canada Agreement, (laughs) and Canada calls it the Canada-United States-Mexico Agreement. So what do Mexicans call it? The Mexicans call it the United States-Mexico-Canada Agreement. (laughs) That's even better. (laughs) I would make it, it'd be better if they called it the Mexican-Canadian-United States Agreement. But they don't! (laughs) They're just like, guys, it doesn't matter. Uh, who cares? <laughs> all We're all pretty. This agreement replaced NAFTA, which was the North American Free Trade Agreement, in 2020. There's not a lot of difference. I mean, there's definitely differences between the two agreements, but unless you are an importer or an exporter, it doesn't really matter. It's nothing that's going to impact you. It's mostly just differences in how things are done. It seems like in some ways it's trying to make it easier on importers and exporters, and in some ways it's trying to eliminate illegal Importing and exporting. We couldn't just call it NAFTA Part 2. We had to rename it. We did. And fight over the name. One trillion dollars in bilateral trade and goods and services over the Canada-U.S. border happened in 2021. That year, Canada was the largest U.S. trading partner in goods and services. Cool. Also, the United States and Canada are each other's top sources of imported energy. Interesting. I would not have expected that. I definitely thought we got most of our energy from Middle East. Yeah. But I guess also that is probably various different countries. Mm. Canada's probably the largest single country. But it is 26% of U.S. petroleum imports. And it's been $2 trillion in energy over the past two decades. 
which is a lot. Last little bit here, looking toward future relations. Looking at their websites is like two kids that copy each other's essays and just move some words around to make it look like they didn't. I saw that too, and I thought that was hilarious. Yeah. I thought I was on the same site. I didn't switch until I realized that they're just slightly different. <laughs> I'm going to read the two here and see if you can guess which one's Canada and which one's the United States. Okay. Okay. So this is from the 2021 roadmap for a renewed U.S.-Canada partnership, which is just sort of their little agreement of like, everything's awesome. Everything is awesome when you're part of a team. The first one describes this as an ambitious framework to build a greener, more prosperous future, grow our economies, and strengthen the middle class, combat the global COVID-19 pandemic, create safer, more equitable communities, and stand together in the face of threats to democracy. Hmm. The second one describes it as... It establishes a blueprint for an ambitious and whole-of-government effort against the COVID-19 pandemic and in support of our mutual prosperity. It creates a partnership on climate change, advances global health security, bolsters cooperation on defense and security, and reaffirms a shared commitment to diversity, equity, and justice. I think that one's the U.S. That is the U.S. How could you tell? Mm. There's definitely the keywords there, right? Like at the yeah. end are the diversity, equity, and justice. It's like Well, I'm using words like bolster. Yeah. Reaffirm. Ambitious and whole of government. Yeah. Ambitious and whole of government. That was a giveaway. Also, referring to climate change specifically, I feel like that's a trigger word in the United States. Whereas in Canada, they're just like, we're just going to make a greener future. Yeah, we're going to do that. We're going to make it greener. Also, the emphasis on security, defense yeah. and security. Versus the create safer, more equitable communities. Mild differences, but they're still there. It's interesting when you look at things like that, because it helps you understand how rhetoric shapes the mentality of a nation. Yeah. Which I think is fascinating. The bottom line is that both countries are committed to continued partnership. Yay! So there's nothing terribly exciting here. There is an element here where Canada is facing some uncertainty. Because if you look at this from Canada's perspective, its two closest allies are the United States and the UK. Both countries, the United States to a greater extent, have shown some political instability lately as ideologies diverge. And Canada relies primarily on its allies for foreign intelligence and, to some extent, military strength. So if you're Canada and your security relies heavily on your allies and you're noticing some instability in those allies, that's going to be an issue, right? That's going to be something that you want to consider as you move forward. Now, I didn't find anything that suggested this is going to cause major changes, but I would not be surprised to see Canada turning a little bit more attention inward, possibly working towards more foreign intelligence run by itself, things like that, that might be something on the horizon for the future. But I don't think it's gonna be anything that causes drastic change for the relationship between the United States and Canada. Yeah, makes sense to me. So anything else before we wrap it up? I like Canadians. We love Canadians. All the Canadians that we've met on our travels have been so nice yeah. and so sweet. I have a whole array of people I should be giving shout outs right now. Hi to all of our Canadians. Hi to all our Canadians. And also just Canada in general is stunning. It is so pretty. I, if, yeah, just go to Canada. It's I haven't cool. been, so uh, one day. My dad did live in Canada for a few months at one point when he was a young man. Yeah, I enjoyed driving through. There's so much wilderness though. There's so many places where you're on the highway and you're just, you're the only car there for miles and you just stop and you kind of feel almost like you're inside a snow globe because it's just silent and pristine and you're surrounded by the nature and a lot of times the road will be really winding and you can see where it turns and disappears on both ends. And you just feel like you're kind of in this little capsule of space where you're just alone with nature and the universe and oh, it's so great. Cool. Well, now I want to go to Canada. It's, yeah, there's so much to see in Canada. I mean, I love the United States too. Don't get me wrong. I'm obsessed with our national parks. We have a lot of really awesome things to see. I just, there's something about Canada that just- Canada's 90% woods, as you said. Yep. A lot to enjoy. Yeah, a lot to enjoy. All right, neighbors. Thanks for joining us today. 
If you heard something you liked, please support the show by hitting the subscribe button and reviewing us wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find takeaways from today's show in the show notes, and you can find more information about the podcast and show notes for each episode on carsoncasa.com forward slash podcast. Please send us your questions, comments, and suggestions. You can email us at nto at carsoncasa.com, find us on Facebook at NTO Pod, or find us on Instagram at Next and Over Podcast. We would love to hear from you. And don't forget to check us out on Patreon. We'll be back next week to keep making your world a little smaller.